Hey, transdimensional tardigrades, grappler technicians, and Tholian web spinners. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Earlier this year, I made a personal dream come true. I authored a Science of Star Trek piece for StarTrek.com, the official Star Trek website. Now, the idea for this piece came when science writer Shien Kim sent me a link to a paper about how real-life biologists are putting tardigrade genes in human cells to give those human cells greater immunity to dangerous radiation. Reading this paper, my mind went directly to Season 1 of Star Trek Discovery, where Paul Stamets uses genes from the lovable tardigrade-like life form named Ripper to gain new abilities as well. So, I decided to ask Kim if she'd be willing to co-author a piece with me for StarTrek.com, and she said yes. Kim decided to interview geneticist Christopher Mason for the story, and I set to work penning most of the Star Trek connections, and we split the writing roughly in half. It was a super fun experience. So for this episode of Strange New Worlds, Kim and I are going to read that article for you. And then we're going to catch up with Kim and talk about some of the other amazing science stories that she's written since that Tardigrade piece appeared, and make some pretty cool connections to the Star Trek universe. Without further ado, here's my very first StarTrek.com article. Discovery's tardigrades are making a name for themselves in our world. Scientists are pulling a stamets and infusing human cells with tardigrade DNA. By Xi'an Kim and Michael L. Wong. In Star Trek Discovery's first season, the crew captures a tardigrade-like life form that they name Ripper. In The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry, Michael Burnham determines that this creature's unique biology allows it to navigate the mycelial network, and Captain Lorca enslaves it for the purpose of piloting the ship. Exerted to exhaustion, Ripper enters a state of cryptobiosis, forcing Lieutenant Paul Stamets to take drastic measures. He injects his body with Ripper's DNA in a desperate attempt to pilot Discovery through the mycelial network himself. Today, real-life scientists are pulling a stamets, injecting human cells with tardigrade DNA to confer tardigrade abilities on new life forms. Tough Little Critters In the real world, tardigrades are microscopic animals measuring about one millimeter in length, or approximately one ten-thousandth of ripper size. Don't let their marshmallowy looks or their affectionate nicknames, water bears, moss piglets, fool you. Tardigrades are among the hardiest creatures known to science. In fact, scientists have postulated that these tough little critters are the only life forms that can handle any planetary apocalypse the universe throws at them. Tardigrades even survived the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. No need for a global catastrophe just yet. Tardigrades can be threatened by a much more mundane event. Their humble aquatic homes, such as lakes and tide pools, can dry out. To cope with lean times, tardigrades do in fact enter states of cryptobiosis, 
suspending their metabolic activities and draining their innards of water. It's really an adaptation to a variegated availability of resources, a feast or famine lifestyle, says Christopher Mason, a geneticist at Whale Cornell Medicine, the medical college of Cornell University, and a professed Star Trek fan. The same dehydration coping biology also allows tardigrades to survive radiation levels up to a thousand times the lethal dose for humans. This radiation resistance is what present-day scientists are hoping to pilfer from our friendly neighborhood tardigrades. Shields up! Radiation is dangerous to living tissue because it breaks the chemical bonds in essential molecules, either directly or indirectly, by creating harmful radicals, heating, or stirring up the electrical charges on any surface of our biomolecules. DNA is particularly susceptible to radiation damage. DNA is the instruction manual found in every living cell. A gene is a string of DNA that encodes for the creation of a specific protein. Similar to the crew on a starship, proteins have different tasks that keep the cell functioning smoothly. Metabolize nutrients, take out waste, maintain balance, communicate with other cells, replicate, etc. Hence, when DNA is damaged by radiation, the cell's most basic functions go haywire. For example, cells with mangled DNA can turn cancerous. But somehow, tardigrade DNA is impervious to this radiation damage. The mystery of tardigrade superpowers was solved in 2016, when a group of scientists from 10 Japanese research institutions combed through the genes of tardigrades and compared them against all the known genomes of other species. The researchers identified several tardigrade unique genes, but only one engendered a protein that congregated around DNA. This nondescript protein named the damage suppressor, and often shortened to DSUP, is the key to the tardigrade's radio resistance. The DSUP protein protects DNA from radiation by binding to it and acting as a shield, taking blasts of radiation like a starship's shields absorb phaser fire. The protein also speeds up the DNA repair process by promoting access to the parts of the DNA chain that are in need of a fix, similar to bookmarking a page with a typo. DSUP works by enveloping DNA in an electrostatic hug. DNA is intrinsically negatively charged, while the DSUP protein is overwhelmingly positively charged. Their bond really is as simple as opposites attract, and that's paramount. All DNA shares the same negative charge, whether it's inside a tardigrade or a human. Thus, DSOP has the potential to confer the same radioresistive benefits in a wide range of organisms, if only the cell had the instructions to make it. Engineering a Microscopic Hyperspray Inspired by the work of the Japanese researchers, Mason and his lab are transplanting the tardigrade's DSOP gene into the human genome. They report their findings in a preprint on BioArchive. We're taking, quite frankly, an alien protein and putting it into human cells and seeing what it's doing and how it works, says Mason. To transfer the D-sub gene into a human cell's genome, Mason's lab first takes a virus and swaps out its original genetic material for tardigrade DNA. 
This transforms the virus into what is effectively a microscopic hypospray. When the virus breaches the walls of a human cell, it inserts the helpful DSEP gene rather than a deadly viral code. The human cell now has the instructions for churning out protective DSEP proteins, as would a tardigrade cell. Once the DSEP gene has been implanted into human cells, Mason and his group blasted his cells with X-rays and hydrogen peroxide. Without the DSEP genes, the DNA would shatter. But similar to what the Japanese researchers observed, DSEP-bearing human cells had fewer fragmented DNA bits. These genetically modified cells were also able to grow and function normally, says Mason. Ad Astra per Tardigrada What are radio-resistant human cells good for? One intriguing application is space travel. When astronauts venture beyond Earth's magnetosphere, which protects Earthlings from cosmic rays, a high dosage of radiation becomes a fact of life. DSUP may be the key to enabling long-duration space missions by equipping astronauts with cellular protection from this radiation. I think we're getting into a golden era for space research, space biology, aerospace, and medicine, says Mason. Although he acknowledges that we are still far away from an age of tardigrade therapeutics. While genetic engineering has the potential to bestow enormous health benefits, it also invites a constellation of ethical dilemmas. Star Trek has a storied tradition of dealing with this subject. For example, the 1967 episode Space Seed depicts a band of genetically enhanced humans, led by the infamous Khan Noonien Singh, seeking dominance over the rest of humanity on the basis of their superior abilities. Genetic engineering, only a thought experiment for 1960s sci-fi writers, is quickly becoming a reality today. This century, scientists and policymakers must wrestle with questions like Will access to gene therapy be equitable and just? Where is the line between treatments and cosmetics? And who gets to decide what defects need fixing? Mason has several suggestions on how to give reversible radio protection to human cells that can be administered on demand, sidestepping the ethical conundrum of creating designer babies. Through triggers that temporarily tack onto DNA, certain genes can be turned on and off like a switch. In this way, Mason speculates that perhaps humans can be equipped with novel genes that temporarily grant radiation resistance and other beneficial traits. While it's still unclear whether the strategy will work, Mason is hopeful. Scientists already have the tools and framework to develop these reversible gene therapies today. Alternatively, perhaps humans can ingest just a concoction of these subproteins as a drug when we need to take up this superpower on a short notice. In this scenario, human genes would be left untampered, and DSUP would be farmed in bacteria that have been genetically engineered to become miniature DSUP protein factories. If any of these avenues come to fruition, tardigrade DNA will have granted real astronauts greater access to the stars a striking parallel to how Ripper's DNA granted Stamets unfettered access to the mycelial network. Well, 
Well, it's so amazing to be doing an in-person interview again after all of this time. I am sitting in my backyard across from science journalist Xi and Kim. Kim, how's it going? Very well, thank you. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing pretty well. People don't usually ask me how I'm doing after I ask them. So that's very kind of you. It's weird if I don't ask it when we're doing this in person. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, I've forgotten how in-person interactions works. I should uh, probably get used to that again. So, Kim, one thing that we've been doing this summer together is binge-watching all of Season 1 of Star Trek Lower Decks in preparation for Season 2, which is currently airing now as we are recording this podcast. I think we are three episodes into the second season. You've really been enjoying yourself with Lower Decks, haven't you? Yeah, it's really funny. It's really entertaining. What do you think is your favorite thing about the new show? I like how Lower Decks doesn't take itself so seriously, and it's almost completely different from the traditional Star Trek episodes. It's always so high and mighty, lofty, there's a clear hierarchy. But I think it's good to be reminded once in a while, especially the leaders, that they're nothing if they don't have their followers like listening to their orders. <laughs> Indeed. And, and you say that as a kind of follower yourself, as a graduate student at UChicago in the Pritzker School of Molecular Engineering. Do you kind of identify with a lower decker kind of attitude or perhaps a particular character from the show? Yeah, as a graduate student, I feel that I'm more of a lower decks person. My favorite character is Beckett Mariner. Mm -hmm. um, she doesn't strive to be promoted. And she just revels in her role. And I think that's a great philosophy in life. Like, if you can enjoy where you are right now, everyone can still contribute and play their role well if they just do their job. It doesn't matter if you're, like, in the leadership position or at, or at the bottom. It doesn't matter. Just have fun while you're doing it. <laughs> yeah. I remember one of Mariner's lines is, why can't I just be a great ensign? And I guess, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a great ensign. Not everybody needs to want to be the admiral, the fleet commander of all of Starfleet. You can make a big difference from where you are, no matter where you are. So since we wrote that tardigrade story that our listeners just heard, you have published a bucket load of other articles, while I have written practically nothing. So now we know who the real science journalist is between the two of us. Um, this summer, you had a very prestigious writing fellowship called the AAAS Mass Media Fellowship. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, it's a program for scientists who want to transition or foray into science writing. And the program put me in at Smithsonian Magazine for an entire summer. I'm not the first fellow who has appeared on a show. I've really followed in the footsteps of a former fellow and guest on the show, Erica Carlson. She worked at Discover Magazine. So kudos to her for inspiring more and more people to apply for this fellowship. What do you think was the biggest thing that you learned about science communication from the AAAS Mass Media Fellowship experience? Maybe like a tip that you'd like to pass along to any other aspiring science storytellers? Clarity and accuracy beats style and voice every time. No need to be fancy, no need to be clever, no need to be funny. As long as you're clear and you keep your language simple and you make yourself understandable, you have done all the goals that are required for science communication. That's good advice. A lot of people 
try to be too cute maybe with their writing and in that process lose a lot of clarity and end up confusing their readers, which obscures the main message and the reason why the readers were looking at that article in the first place. So we've chosen two of your articles that you wrote for your fellowship to highlight today and draw some awesome Star Trek connections to. I've put links in the show notes to these two articles for our listeners who would like to visit the Smithsonian Magazine's website and read them for themselves. So the first of these two articles is titled, Can the World's First Space Sweeper Make a Dent in Orbiting Debris? And it's about how a company called Astroscale is launching spacecraft to clean up some of the junk that we've been putting into orbit around our planet. Kim, first of all, space debris is not really a problem that most people think about on a day-to-day basis. It's not like trash piling up on the street. You can't see it. You can't smell it. Many people probably don't even know that space debris is a problem to begin with. So how bad is space debris exactly, and why should anybody care about it? Space debris is a problem, but it's not at the worst point yet, at the point of no return where there are too many objects in space that we've essentially caged ourselves in on planet Earth because the high concentration of objects in the sky prevents humanity from ever sending up any other spacecraft or leaving planet Earth. That being said, space debris is still a problem today because for every spacecraft that we want to launch into space or any spacecraft that's already in space, Every few months or so, these objects need to dodge out of the way of an incoming debris object. There's still space to maneuver around these objects, but every time a spacecraft needs to move out of the way, it has to go offline. And that's a problem if this interrupted surface is caused by a satellite moving. And we rely on satellite services all the time for internet, GPS, or weather monitoring. So essentially... Space debris is a problem because it messes with our satellites that we rely on for round-the-clock services. Wow. Sounds like space debris is actually able to impact all of our lives because it impacts the connectivity we have to each other through our technology that goes through space via the satellites that we put into orbit. And those satellites are in danger, essentially, of crashing into old satellites or parts of old spacecraft. And when they do, or if they need to maneuver around those debris, it's a problem for their functionality. So the problem seems obvious. We need to collect that debris. We need to gather it up and do something with it. What is the technology behind Astroscale's so-called space sweeper? So Astroscale's space sweeper is called ELSA, which stands for End of Life Services, and it will use magnets to pick up debris objects. And so essentially you can identify a fatal flaw with this plan. It can only pick up objects that are magnetic, have designated magnetic plates so ELSA can grapple with it, and objects that are essentially smaller than itself, and that means it should weigh around 500 pounds or less. So the way ELSA would work is that it will latch onto a debris object with this magnetic mechanism and then drag the object down to 
Earth's natural incinerator, which is the atmosphere. So Elsa will drag its target down to the atmosphere, where both Elsa and the target will burn up in a fiery finale. That's so cool. And this Elsa device reminds me of a technology from Star Trek, which is the grappler, which we saw in Star Trek Enterprise. So the grappler, for those listeners who haven't seen this, is basically a rudimentary tractor beam. It is a magnetic docking clamp that is tethered to the ship with a metal wire. And Enterprise would shoot this grappler to another ship or perhaps a piece of space debris, and it would magnetically lock and then drag that other object towards the starship. This was sort of like a prototype to the tractor beam, which is space magic, (laughs) a far future space magic. As science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke once said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. But what I loved about Enterprise was that it sort of showed the evolution of our technology towards that magical state of the tractor beam through something that was still in the future, but very relatable to us. We all understand that magnets make things stick to one another, etc. Uh, and it seems like Astroscale is basically building the prototype to the grappler in order to tackle our space debris problem, which is just so cool to me. What is the ultimate goal of Astroscale, and how close are they to achieving that goal? So ELSA will specifically target the modern satellites that will be deployed by companies like Amazon, SpaceX, and OneWeb. And the goal of these companies is to provide affordable internet services to anyone anywhere in the world. And the way they do that is by deploying cheap and small satellites by the thousands or ten thousands in the next few years. And in fact, they're actually doing it right now. And these satellites, they're not designed to last forever. Some of them are designed to last for only five years. And even if they are, nothing lasts forever. Some of these satellites will glitch and fail. And some of these satellites are even not designed to last for a very long time, only for like about five years. And so this is where Astroscale and ELSA will come in. Basically, ELSA is designed to go collect those satellites that have failed or have reached the end of their lives. So that's what actually ELSA stands for, End of Life Services by Astroscale. That sounds like a great goal. How close exactly is Astroscale to achieving this goal? And what are the challenges and next steps? So ELSA is not commercially available yet. But right now, Astroscale is testing its prototype called ELSA-D. And ELSA-D was just deployed March this year. And right now, it's undergoing a bunch of tests. ELSA-D consists of the actual space sweeper itself, which we will call the chaser, as well as a debris object proxy, which we will call the target. Both the chaser and the target will be equipped with magnets for the chaser to grapple with the object. And it turns out the grappling mechanism that incident isn't the hard part. The hardest part is everything that leads right up to it. How the chaser will try to grab a debris object that's actually freely tumbling. So objects in space usually are not stationary. They're actually flying chaotically, especially the debris objects. They're flying chaotically at speeds up to 10,000 miles per hour. And so the tricky thing is snagging an object in midair that this LCD needs to do. So in the next few years, LCD will be running four different demos of increasing difficulty of how it can 
snag its target while it's tumbling eventually. And if all these tests work out, hopefully LCD will be replaced by the commercial version and hopefully it will be ready to open shop in by 2024. Wow. So it sounds like we're just getting started and it will be a long road from there to here. Uh, Here being, of course, uh, being able to sweep up all of the debris that we are putting into space. As you said, companies right now trying to increase Internet access across the globe are sending up satellites by the thousands and all of those satellites will eventually become space garbage in several years time so is astroscale really going to make a difference if we are just incrementally getting to the stage where you can lock on to just a few magnetically compatible devices if i were more cynical i would say no astroscale and elsa would not make a difference as i mentioned before there's a limit to the kind of objects that elsa can pick up. Basically, ELSA cannot deal with the large objects that we've been accumulating in our orbit since the 1950s at the beginning of space travel. So by looking at that alone, no, ELSA can't really make a difference quickly. But I'm more optimistic than that. And actually, Astroscale is getting ready for the shift in the landscape of space use, which is actually hogged by private companies who are deploying these small satellites instead of big objects. So based on the trend of space exploration, ELSA is carving out a niche for itself. And I think that's pretty hopeful because those kinds of small satellites will be the major pollutants in the years to come. And I also want to point out, humanity has never had any strategy to deal with space debris until now. This is the first ever active debris removal strategy that we have. And having just something is so much better, infinitely better than nothing. So in that case, yes, Astroscale is doing something really, really important. And I think, personally, I hope that what Astroscale and ELSA can do is kickstart a seismic shift in the attitudes of space users in terms of recognizing that space debris is a problem and we need to everyone needs to start doing and thinking about it space debris strikes me sort of like climate change as a problem that impacts all of us and yet we don't really have a globally agreed upon solution to it in the case of climate change you know people can identify little ways in which they can make the problem a little less bad, you know, maybe drive a little bit less, recycle more, consume less, things like that. Turn off the lights when you leave the house, etc. What can the average citizen do with regard to the problem of space debris? That's a great question. And honestly, we cannot directly influence the problem of space debris. And it's up to us, the average citizen, to vote and influence the people in power to actually do something about it. And just like climate change, this single solution will not be the silver bullet to solve the whole problem. It's definitely not a moral license for space users to keep continuing on their very pollutive ways. Basically, ELSA needs to be supplemented by other strategies. Most importantly, mitigation. Space users need to try not to add to the space debris problem by not piling up their junk in space. They need to find ways to make sure that their spacecraft fails minimally. 
Yes, I, I think that this is a great parallel to climate change because just like climate change, it is really those few people, corporations and governments in power that have the biggest sway. And we as normal people, as consumers, as voters, need to do our duties to vote and influence policy in this regard. All right, let's switch gears and now talk about your other article that we want to discuss today, which is all about the many wonders of spider silk. And here we will draw an analogy to the spider-like Tholians in Star Trek. So for those of you who don't know, Tholians are sort of arachnid-like creatures. They live on a very hot planet like Venus. They're crystalline in nature and are very much like spiders in a few regards. For one, they spin silk. Tholian silk is highly prized as a commodity that fancy clothing in the Star Trek universe can be made from. Kim, is spider silk on Earth ever used to make clothing? Very rarely, but yes. A few years ago, there was this exhibition of a cape spun entirely out of spider silk for fashion purposes. Why? Art, I guess. (laughs) And there was another instance where a company used spider silk to make a bulletproof vest. And the reason spider silk was used is because spider silk is actually a wonder material. Wait for wait. It's stronger than seal, tougher than Kevlar. It's flexible, elastic, and antimicrobial. Wow. I want to point out that using natural spider silk to make garments is really not very practical. These two examples that I just pointed out required the efforts of millions of spiders, almost 10 years of time. And it's really hard to domesticate spiders because they eat each other. You can't just put them together and they'll just self-annihilate basically. So these clothing companies, they had to actually catch spiders in the wild harness some of the silk and then just let them go. So it took years to do that. Not practical. And if we actually want to get to the point to harness the wonderful properties of spider silk, the best bet we have is to use chemistry techniques to create artificial spider silk. And that would open up many more doors for mass production. So another way that the Tholians from Star Trek are kind of like spiders is that their ships attack other spacefaring vessels by spinning webs of energy that ensnare and destroy those other starships. Now, we all know that spider webs are used to catch prey, but this is usually done in a passive manner, right? Classically, a spider spins a web and then waits patiently for a fly or another insect to get stuck in it. But Do spiders ever use their silk to go hunting in the way that the Tholians might use their energy webs to catch other ships in space? Spiders have so many other strategies to hunt with their spider silk. And it's as you said, it's definitely not just this passive web, Halloween web kind of method. Spider silk doesn't have to be spun in a web. It can be used as a rope. And one spider actually has done that. The war spider specifically hunts ants, and ants are actually very nasty to spiders. Ants can actually eat spiders if the spiders are not careful. So this war spider hunts ants by binding it from a distance. Basically, it uses its 
spider silk like a lasso, it throws the silk over the ant and then runs circles around it, gradually wrapping this ant until it's completely immobilized, then it goes in for the kill. There's another spider that does spin a web, but it deploys in a completely different manner than this Halloween decoration-like web. This ogre-faced spider weaves a web and holds it wide open with its four front legs, then waits for any insect to wander by. If an insect crawls underneath it, then it drops down from the top and lands on it with its net over it. Or if there's an insect flying overhead, it can twist around and snag this insect midair like a lacrosse player. Wow, that is amazing. So in your piece, you explore 14 cool ways that spiders use their silk. Obviously, we don't have time to go through all 14 today, and I encourage our listeners to go click on the link to your piece in the show notes. But what are a few of your favorite other ways that spiders get creative with their silk? Did you know that spiders can fly? Well, they don't really have wings, but they fly with their spider silk threads. So spiders do this thing called ballooning, where they stream their spider silk threads into the air like a sail. But the threads don't actually work like a parachute or a sail. Spiders actually rely on electrostatic repulsion to achieve lift. So basically, light charges repel and spider silk is negatively charged. And the surface of the earth is actually also weakly but negatively charged by the 40,000 thunderstorms that happen around the world. And so spider silk will be repelled by the surface of the earth and it's thin enough that it can fly up and lift the tiny spider that's hanging by the threads and off it goes. Whoa, that's so cool. I would love to see an episode of Star Trek in the future where they visit a planet that the Tholians inhabit. And one of the ways that Tholian individuals get around on that planet is they balloon themselves using their own Tholian silk. I think that would be so cool. Yeah, spiders have traversed long distances with ballooning. They've been found on the jet stream, in the middle of oceans, on islands miles and miles away from the mainland. Even Darwin found spiders on his ship on the Beagle when he was sailing around the world and he wondered how on earth did spiders get onto his ship and it was by ballooning. He didn't realize it yet. But later, in the late 19th century, scientists found spiders inhabiting this newly formed island formed from the explosion of a volcano in Indonesia, basically. And there was no other life form present except this spider. This spider did not survive the volcano eruption, actually, but it arrived on that island in the aftermath, like three months later, and has since colonized that place. That's really cool. So what's one other awesome thing that spiders do with their silk? Spiders also communicate through the vibrations of the silk. So right before courtship, a male spider might strum a silken thread to communicate with a female to make sure that the female is more receptive towards mating behavior. That's, I think that's a very ingenious application, but as with communication, when you try to communicate with someone, there will be someone who will want to lie to you. And spiders can communicate or send false communication signals, basically lie, through the spider silk. There's this one spider called this Porsche jumping spider, and it's highly intelligent. 
basically it tries to mimic the uh, vibrations of a struggling insect caught in a web or tries to mimic a different kind of spider basically to lure other spiders to where it's at and then it will ambush the spider and eat it basically and it's not just these random vibrational uh, signals that it transmits basically this Porsche jumping spider can actually intelligently experiment with the vibrational signals it puts out it can even calm a larger prey larger spider prey by plucking monotonous tunes or it can even strum in a way that it can orient the spider prey in a specific direction so it could ambush this victim from a safer angle basically so basically maybe turn it towards the back so the Porsche jumping spider can leap on it from behind wow that's really cool this plays right into a theme of information being very key to what life is and how life operates. And on a future episode of Strange New Worlds, we'll be talking to Professor Caleb Scharf about his new book, The Ascent of Information, in which he talks about themes like this, where communication between members of the same species or between even between different species is extremely important to life's functionality. And I would love to see an episode of Star Trek in which the Tholians use their energy webs not just as a way of defeating an enemy starship, but perhaps also as a way to communicate. What if an alternative use for these Tholian energy webs was to spin a great network through which the Tholian assembly could communicate across vast distances through the vibrations in these strings. Very, very intriguing. I hope that Star Trek continues to draw analogies between spiders and all of the creative uses that they have for their silk and put that into the lore for Tholians. So Kim, our time is running out. I just have a few last questions for you. The first is... How can people follow your work on the internet? Listeners can follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is goesbykim, goes underscore by underscore Kim. And I also have a website. Basically, if you Google my name, hopefully the first thing that comes up is one of my works. Awesome. And finally, this is a question that I've been asking all of my guests this year. What is one thing that gives you hope for the future? As a science writer, I'm very privileged to be able to speak with scientists working on all different kinds of science and projects. And just seeing the passion of these scientists work on every single thing that I never knew could be relevant, but they could find some relevance towards life and solve a problem makes me hopeful that there are legions of brilliant people trying to make the world a better place. Yay, science! Well, thank you for joining me on Strange New Worlds once again, Kim. It was a pleasure to speak to you, as always. Thank you. That was UChicago graduate student and science journalist Xi'an Kim on the science of spider silk, space debris, and tardigrades. If you want to hear more from Kim, please check out episodes 107 and 90, and, of course, Check out all of her work on her website and follow her Twitter feed for all of her latest writings online. If you've been enjoying Strange New Worlds, I'd love it if you left us a rating or a review or just told a friend about the show. I'll be back next time 
with the aforementioned interview with Professor Caleb Scharf about how information rules our world, both in Star Trek and in real life. Until then, see you out there. By Michael L. Wong and Xian Kim. No, it's she and Kim and Michael yeah, L. Okay. Wong. Okay. No, 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 no. You're the first author. I don't care. No, you wrote more. No, 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 no.